Hey, I'm Jeff, and you're listening to LGBTQ&A. If you like our show, please subscribe. Subscribing and leaving a comment on iTunes is one of the biggest ways you can help our show to grow. Today, we're bringing you an interview with the legendary activist Sylvia Rivera. Eric Marcus interviewed her in the 80s as part of his book-turned-podcast, Making Gay History, and he's here to tell us a little bit more about that. Hi, Eric. Hi, Jeffrey. I'm so delighted to be on your show. Thanks for, uh, for having me. Yeah, of course. We said in the intro, but you originally interviewed Sylvia for your book. Yes, I, I had the privilege of interviewing Sylvia in 1989 um, at her apartment in North Cherrytown, New York, and it was, it was an experience. Yeah, we read so much about her and her contributions to our history that it really just knocked me out to hear her own story in her own voice. You know, when I interviewed Sylvia uh, back in 89, I'm sure it registered me, her voice registered with me, um, but I had forgotten. I hadn't heard her voice since I first did the interview. So hearing it all these years later, it was very powerful. And at the time I interviewed her, I didn't realize uh, that she was an icon. And actually it was pre-icon days and she has since become an icon. So to hear a real person's voice as opposed to an icon's voice was was something uh um there's such humanity in in her voice in and in hearing about her experience and i think that gets lost uh in in iconic status we forget that sylvia was a was a real person um who had an extremely difficult life uh born in 1951 in the bronx a really effeminate kid um and wound up homeless on the streets of new york hustling at age 11. So if she was not yet an icon, why did you say that she scared the shit out of you? Well, um, I, it was it was Sylvia's looks that scared me. I mean, I was uh, I wasn't the most worldly person, even even in 1989, even though I'd been to college and had traveled abroad. Um, I had never interviewed a drag queen before. Um, I didn't know what to expect. And, and when I arrived at Sylvia's apartment, I was at the base of a staircase looking up this long flight of stairs. It's an, it was an old rickety tenement building and there standing at the top of the steps was Sylvia in a bare, with a bare light bulb over her head um, in rather lurid makeup. Um, she, has, she had big features um, and long hair and was dressed in what I came to, to understand was something called scare drag, um, which is partial drag with, uh, um, with the hair out, as Sylvia said to me, no tits on. Um, but dressed in, in sort of women's clothes, um, a, sort of what my sister would have been wearing in the 1970s to a disco um, if, she, uh, uh, if she had dressed for the neighborhood and wasn't aspiring to something better. Um, Sylvia was wearing a you know, black halter top tied at the waist over a skin-tight black undershirt tucked into hot pink spandex pants, and those were tucked into beige knee-high boots with chunky heels. And so I don't know if it was the combination of her face, her makeup, her hair, her outfit, the light, whatever it was, but I was scared, you know. Um, I really, I, I regressed to my, my young self from Queens, where I grew up, uh, rather sheltered, and I had never met anyone like Sylvia before, and I thought, oh my God, how am I going to do this interview? Um, but then she welcomed me into her kitchen, and it was a steamy kitchen. She was making chili uh, her boyfriend Frank was there, her friend Rennie was there, and it was a very domestic scene. Um, and I very quickly came to see that Sylvia was normal, and we had this great conversation. Wow. 
I know that labels were more fluid back then, although today we remember her as an early transgender pioneer. You called her a drag queen. Was she identifying as a drag queen back then? Yeah, um, I, I don't believe she ever referred to herself as trans in the interview. Uh, she also said I could call her Sylvia or Ray, whatever, which is her given name as a child, whatever uh, made her made me comfortable. What was uh, Also, I was just looking at some photos today of Sylvia, and in one of the early protests, Sylvia is dressed as a boy. So I think things were, were more fluid then. Um, I think that's actually, well, things were more fluid then. Um, and I think everyone benefited from, from more fluidity. I think, I think we aspire to that now. Um, but we do try to impose labels looking back through the lens of the present day in a way that doesn't always fit people. Um, the same went for Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia's close friend. Uh, who identified in all kinds of ways. Um, and I think they, they are good, good role models in that regard um, that maybe we don't have to box ourselves in so, uh, so tightly. I love that. Yeah, and that's why in the interview we hear you calling her Ray, I believe. Yeah, um, and uh, what you don't hear in the interview is her, her friend Rennie, who refers to her as, as Ray. Um, it's Rennie, on the way to the apartment, um, uh, asks... Um, Sylvia to leave some, she wants, when she gets back from work, she wants to have a drink. And she can also, Rennie could see that, that the bottle of vodka on the table was already uh, almost empty. Um, and Sylvia drank throughout the, throughout the interview. There's some archival footage of her um, when she's living on a pier. This is after I'd interviewed her and her life had gone, had really unraveled after Marsha P. Johnson was, was uh, after she died. And Sylvia wound up uh, living uh, on a pier here in Manhattan, um, just off of Greenwich Village. And there's a moment where she says to the person who's got the camera on her, uh, they're, they're, the police are clearing this, this shanty town, uh, or these shanties on the river. And Sylvia says, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm crazy. The world made me crazy. And when you, you get to know what Sylvia's life was like, you can better understand why she could sometimes be very erratic, why she wound up with drug and alcohol problems, why she wound up homeless. I mean, it's, it's so hard to imagine, certainly for someone like me who grew up, um, my family was, was, was complicated, but, but I always had a home. Um, and I can't imagine being a child out on the streets trying to get by by selling my body. Um, and that's what, what Sylvia did. Wow. Well, thank you for being here. Let's get to the interview. So this is Sylvia Rivera in 1989. Interview with Ray Rivera, Saturday, December 9th, 1989, at 4 p.m. Location is the home of Ray Rivera in Tarrytown, New York. Interviewer is Eric Marcus, tape one, side one. The Stonewall wasn't a bar for drag queens. Everybody keeps saying it was. Mm -hmm. So this is where I get into arguments with people. They say, oh, no, it's always a drag queen bar, and it was a black bar. No. Washington Square Bar mm -hmm. was the drag queen bar. Okay, you could get into the Stonewall if they knew you. And there were only a certain amount of drag queens that were allowed into the Stonewall at that time. We had just come back in from, um, from Washington, my first lover and I. We were passing forged checks okay. and whatnot, but we were making good money. And so, well, let's go to Stonewall. Let's do our thing. Let's go there, you know. Actually, it was the first time that I had even been to freaking Stonewall. 
I was in full drag. I was dressed, you know, very pleasantly. I was wearing a woman's suit. Bell bottoms were out there, and I had made this fabulous suit at home. And I was wearing that, and I had the hair out. Lots of makeup, lots of hair. <laughs> were you drinking at the bar, or just standing around? No, I, I was drinking. The police came in. They came in to get the pay off, as usual. They would come in, padlock the freaking door. As soon as they left, the mafia was there, cut in the door. They had a new register. They had more money, and they had more booze. This is what we learned to live with at that time. We had to live with it. We had to live with it until that day. I don't know if it was the customers or it was the police. It just... Everything clicked. Everybody just like, why the fuck are we doing all this for? The people at the bars, uh, especially at Stonewall, were involved in other movements. And everybody just like, all right, we got to do our thing. We're going to go for it. And when they ushered us out, it was nice, you know, when they just very nicely put you out the door and then you're standing across the street and shut in the square park and... But why? But why? All of a sudden you just feel this. Everybody's looking at each other. But why do we have to keep on constantly putting up with this? And the nickels, the dimes, the pennies, and the quarters started flying. Why? Why, why that? Why do people do that? The payoff. That... that was the payoff. Oh, 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 oh. That was the payoff. It was to symbolize the payoff. Yeah. You already got... Here's some more. And here's some more. To be there, you know, it's just like, oh, it's so beautiful. I just like, you know, it's just like... Was it exciting? Oh, it was so exciting. It was like, ow, we're doing it. We're doing it. We're, we're fucking nanners. The cops were, you know, they, they just panicked. Inspector Pine really panicked. Mm -hmm. He really did. Mm -hmm. Plus, he had no backup. Mm -hmm. He did not expect any of the retaliation that the gay community gave him at that point. Do you think all this was in, in part because people were so angry for so long? People were very angry for so long. I mean, how long can you live in a closet? I was already out of my closet. When you're obvious back then, there was nothing to hold you back. It was always the effeminate male or the butch woman. That's what society always looked like. We are the ones that went out there, and we didn't take no shit from, from them. We had nothing to lose. Actually, you know, at that, at that point in time, you know, I understand the ones that held their heads down low because they probably had very nice jobs and they had a family to go to. I was born to be an effeminate child. My grandmother used to come home and find me all dressed up. It's just like... I get my ass whipped, of course, you know, well, we don't do this, you're one of the boys, I want you to be a, a mechanic. Uh -huh. I said, no, but I want to be a hairdresser, <laughs> I want to do this, <laughs> and I want to wear these clothes. 
And I was born July 2nd, 1951, at 2.30 in the morning in a taxi cab in the old Lincoln Hospital parking lot. The old queen couldn't wait. <laughs> she said, I'm ready to hit the streets. My grandmother used to always joke about that. I said, yeah. I said, you see why I'm always standing out on the street corner? <laughs> That's good. And then I was came out feet first. You did? Yes. Oh, so you landed on the... Uh, mm, landed so on... I was ready. I always mention my grandmother's because my, my mother died when I was three years mm -hmm. old, and she raised me. Mm -hmm. So it's my grandmother that raised me until I left home. Right. So you left home at 10? Yeah. I left home about 10, 10 and a half. I was almost 11. You know, the only reason that I left home at such an early age was because my grandmother came home crying one day. With the tears in her eyes, they're calling you a pato, which means faggot mm -hmm. in the Spanish language. And it, it hurt her so bad because they were doing this to me. And she knew where I was coming from. She even knew. I had that much respect for my grandmother. I, 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 didn't, I, didn't, want, I didn't want her to suffer. It wasn't my suffering. I was worrying about her suffering. How did you survive on the street? You <laughs> became a street walker. You stand out on the street and you make money. At that age? At that age, it was easy to make money. <laughs> I don't know how many times my grandmother had to come and bail me out of jail. She was there. She always came and bailed me out. She says, oh, that's my grandson. I have to take him out. What were you in jail for? Prostitution, you know, right. bullshit, loitering. Right. Nothing major, you know. If you walk down 42nd Street, it even looked like a faggot. You were going to jail. So you went to jail a few times? Oh, I went to jail a lot of times. The community is always embarrassed by drag queens. Why do you think? Why do I think? Yeah. No, it's not why I think I know. Okay, why do you know? Because straight society always looks Oh, well, a faggot always dresses in drag, or he's too effeminate. You got to be who you are. Mm -hmm. Passing is like saying a light-skinned black woman or black male passing for white. And I refused to pass. You couldn't have passed? No, I couldn't have passed. Not in this lifetime? No, not in this lifetime. I just like being myself. So, it's fun being Sylvia. It's fun playing the game. Special thanks to Eric Marcus, Sarah Birmingham, and Making Gay History for the interview. Making Gay History's new season is out now and includes another interview with Sylvia Rivera. If you like our show, LGBTQ&A, please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes. You can also check out our newsletter at LGBTQ&A or tweet at me if you want to recommend a guest. I tweet from at JeffMasters1. Don't forget to check out AfterBuzz TV for all of your after show needs. The new fall TV season has begun and they are recapping the biggest and the best shows. All right, we will see you next week. Goodbye.